This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Good Tuesday morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek in Ocala, Florida. And I am Christy Landwehr from Aurora, Colorado. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for this Tuesday, July 16th, 2019, episode 2226. This episode is brought to you by the Certified Horsemanship Association. Good morning, horse world. Houston, we have a problem. Ability equals skill plus knowledge. I got a bad feeling about this. Here's a safety tip for you from the Certified Horsemanship Association. Missed it by that much. How can I change this to make it better the next time? Help you, I can. Yeah. Time for Training Tuesday on Horses in the Morning with the Certified Horsemanship Association. On today's show, following an informative chat about fly control with Tom Spaulding, Jennifer Gay is going to stop by and talk about aromatherapy 101 for horse folks. And then Cecilia Bunge is going to bust a myth that you cannot make money in the horse business. So stay tuned for the fray, folks. I'm waiting to hear that one because we'd like to make money someday doing this. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Christy. Good Good Hello, morning. Glad. Good. So, good morning, uh, it, we haven't talked to you since we were out there and visited you and your husband. That's true. It was right after the show that you guys came out. Yeah, we went and saw a concert together. We went up to Red Rock Amphitheater, which um, uh, exhausts you. Get, but by the time the concert starts, you're ready to sit for two hours. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of walk in there, yes. But it is, oh, so beautiful. And the sun sets there and the sun rises there. Wow, just neat. It is absolutely probably one of the most spectacular concerts. And it was a beautiful night. We had an absolutely gorgeous night. It was beautiful. <laughs> there were like no, very little clouds, and you could see the whole city in front of you. And the Red Rock Amphitheater sits above Denver uh, and it, in the foothills, and it is just beautiful. <laughs> and it was packed. It was really packed. And then uh, off in the distance, all that lightning wasn't that awesome. And so we then, didn't get rained on, but we got to have a lightning show. And it was really cool, too, because I didn't realize how busy the Denver airport was. But there were pl- 10 planes in the air around the airport at all, the whole concert. <laughs> there Constantly. Planes yes. Mainly Southwest night. and United, but yes, a, lo- a lot of them. And then uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to you, but we went 4.30 in the morning to the airport Sunday morning to Denver to leave. And the line to check in the luggage at Southwest was two hours long. It wrapped around the building. Finally, Whoa. they just came and said, go use the porters outside. It'll go faster. And that only took us a half an hour. And then the security lines were hours long, hours long. They were backed up through hallways and around. And, and we got lucky there, too. A TSA agent came up to a little group. and We were at the end of the line. And they said, we're opening up the one at the far end that's for military, usually. She said, we're going to open that up for people. Go out there now. So we only waited about 20 minutes out there. But I guarantee you there was a ton of people missing their airplane that day. <laughs> Listen. And that's crazy how early in the morning and how backed up. That's wild. It was 4.30. <laughs> it 
That's was, wild. And a Sunday morning, we thought, oh, we're going to breeze through everything, you know? Nope. <laughs> was, we would have wow. missed our flight had they not given us those shortcuts. We would have missed oh, our yeah. flight for sure. They're, we wouldn't have made oh. it. Oh, you <laughs> I never don't know. know. about Denver? Holy cow. I know. It actually, well, you know, it's a hub for Frontier, Southwest, and United. So I think that that's a big part. And boy, it is summer vacation time right now. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you about your national conference. But before we do that, we have to do a tiny bit more trip talk because everybody's doing vacations this time of year. I saw a lot of pictures of you in a very, very tropical place. Yes, I got to go to Aruba. That was pretty awesome. And for those that don't know, it's actually owned by the Danes. So it's Danish. Um, so they use the florin as their currency. And it is 18 miles north of Venezuela in South America. But, you know, you don't go to Venezuela right now. But because it's owned by the Danes and not the Venezuelans, it's a safe place to go still. And it's um, only 19 miles long. And so we rented a car just for two days. You can kind of see it all in just two days. But the rest of the time, of course, you hang out at the resort and you enjoy yourself and you go in the lazy river at the pool and you go in the beach and the Caribbean Sea. I can float already. You know how there's floaters and sinkers? Well, I'm a floater. So I get on my back and I float. In the Caribbean Sea, I float so much. Like my entire head is above the water. I don't even have water in my ears and my entire foot is above the water. It was not a bad time. And you did uh, some, which one did you do? Did you do hang glide? Yeah, my do? son and I did a parasailing, ah. which is where they put you back behind yep. the boat, and they kind of put you up in a big thing, a um, uh, big kite. Um, t- How was that? Like a parachute. It was really relaxing. Going up's a little scary because the winds kind of get you, so you it kind of feels like a roller coaster or turbulence in an airplane. Um, but once you're up there, it's very calm, and you see big sea turtles, and it's just so great. And then they bring you back down, and again, a little bit of turbulence on the way down, but then you go right back on the boat, so you don't even get wet. And your husband and other son did something different, right? Yeah, they did kite surfing, which is where you attach a kite um, to a board, kind of like it looks like a like a snowboard, and you kind of cruise along the water with a kite pulling you. Yeah, I but don't think I, I think that looks dangerous. <laughs> Well, it's challenging. you got to get up, right? It's yeah. just like a lot to it. So, but it was really fun. We called it Water Sport Day. How was fun? Wow, that's very cool. I'm so glad you got to do that. And you mentioned you also, because of your points and and a mix-up, got to fly first class, which is really nice. Yeah, that was kind of wild. Good old mix-ups and points. I'm not going to argue about that. Yes. And one of them was a pretty long flight. Um, so we were very, we had a good time. And the boys were like, oh, I don't know now about being in the back of the plane. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. you spoiled them. That's right. Spoiling them early. But they'll probably never get that experience again until they're out of this house. So I'm glad they got to have it once. I don't know that Jennifer and I have ever... We, we fly mostly Southwest. So there's no first class. It's all cattle class. So, yes. yeah. You, as you know, you fly Southwest a lot. But, yeah, I, I like don't that. think we've cattle ever class. done first class anywhere. That. Cattle class. Yeah, that's... Uh-huh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if somebody wants it. to fly Southwest, they can do that to your next conference, can't they? They sure could. Where's, very easily. Yeah, because you go right be? into Buffalo from... Um, many, many locations you can get to Buffalo. It's just going to be at Houghton College, which is an hour from the Buffalo airport. And anyone's invited. Um, and if you go ahead and put in HRN, Horse Radio Network, as your coupon code, you will get the CHA member price. You don't even have to be a CHA member to get our member price to attend. You get to ride with uh, Julie Goodnight and a lot of our other really good speakers. We have Stacy Westfall's husband, Jesse, coming this year. We have uh, Ellen Taylor is going to bring her trotting breads, and that's actually a mini um, standard bread, and teach people how to drive behind a race cart, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds so, yeah, but 
So come one, come all. It's in October, and it's going to be October 24th through 27th. Okay, and and so the, what makes this different than most conferences, quote-unquote, is that it is hands-on. Yes, we don't hang out in the hotel much. And do people that come get to ride? Are they watching? Are they are they auditing? Yes, the story? they can sign up to ride in one session. So the entire time they're there, they can only ride in one. That way we get enough for everybody that wants to ride. Um, and they sign up for it and they ride. But then for the speaker, we always tell them, you know, your riders is not a riding lesson. They're just props for you to get the point across to the hundred and plus people in each breakout session in the audience. But it is is very hands-on for those that want to ride. They definitely can have an opportunity to do so. Must be interesting for the clinicians because now they're teaching the teachers, which means you have to do it a little bit differently. Yes, and we do let them all know that. We let them know, you know, these are the instructors, so please give them things that they can do with their students. And they're really good about that. They say, so something that I do with my student in this situation is this, and maybe you should try it. So they kind of change their mindset a little bit when they speak to our crew. But um, again, anyone can come, even if you're not an instructor. We have lots of uh, lay people that come and learn quite a bit too. So by all means, come one, come all. And how can people sign up and when are the dates again? Yes, CHA.horse. Just go to the International Conference tab at the top and it'll tell you all the registration info. And it's October 24th through 27th in Buffalo, New York at Houghton College. Now we've been to it. You also do have sessions that are very interesting though that don't involve a horse. That is true. And lots of business, lots of marketing, social media, all kinds of stuff like that. And one day you need to come back and teach people how to podcast. There you go. I'll do that. I, I know a little about it. Um, so, <laughs> so, and two of the guests we're on, that we're having on today are actually going to be at the conference. They are. For the next few months, we thought we would feature some of our speakers because we don't want the topics just to stay at conference and that's it. We want people to be able to share it beyond that and to have other people not being able to come to New York to hear. So we're really excited to have two of them on today. So today, a little bit later, we're actually going to talk about something that comes up all the time in the auditor room, and that's essential oils. And I know we've talked about it maybe once or twice on the show, but it's been a while, so I'm glad we're going to be talking about that. And then also how to make money in the horse business, which is something that, you know, I can't tell you how many people that I've seen post on Facebook, God, I want to re leave my real job, and I want, to, I want to do something horsey. Isn't that, that's every horse girl's dream. Yes, it is. And you can do it, but I think Celia is going to tell us how to do it and not, you know, eat top ramen. Well, maybe every, every now and then have, you know, real food. That's the key. <laughs> that is the key. All right. Your first guest is ready, I think. I am so excited to welcome the uh, sponsor of our show today. Tom Spalding is the president of Spalding Labs, the folks that provide fly predators for biological fly control and now Bye Bye Insects, their new essential oil-based fly and mosquito spray. Spalding Labs was founded 43 years ago by Tom's mom, Patricia, and his brother, Patrick. Tom is an entrepreneur, having founded or co-founded a dozen or so companies, many in high tech, but also in retail and mail order. He's run Spalding Labs for the past 17 years, during which it has grown 30-fold. From a kitchen table business in 1977, it's now the largest marketeer in fly control for horses. You've likely gotten one of their yellow catalogs mailed each spring or seen their magazine or internet ads. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Christy. How are you? Doing well. So excited to have you on. Can you let all of our listeners know where you exactly are located? Uh, I'm in Reno, Nevada. Very nice. Right there by Lake Tahoe. Yes. 
I love it. Beautiful high country. We overlook a, a, a snow-covered mountain still. Even though it's July, we still have snow in the mountains. It's been a really wet year. We still have snow in ours, too. I just think that that's phenomenal, right? Here we are past July 4th, and we're still looking at snow. I'm not going to say that that's not fabulous. I think it's great. So, yeah, so it's pretty neat. Here in the, the desert community, you always worry about water, and the snowpack's like a, not quite double. So everybody's happy over that. Well, and the other thing that I think is so neat about um, fly predators and kind of your whole marketing concept is how you have people. They don't have to live in Reno, Nevada, where you are. They can live anywhere and work for you. Yes. Um, all of our phone agents uh, work from home, actually. So we have people in about a dozen states, um, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast. And and, uh, uh, and, and it's a we have a, a very uh, automated uh, system. So even though we're all far apart, um, you know, we can have video calls and basically online uh, access to each other. You can see the phone queue of, of know who's available and who's busy and is it busy or not. And um, it's much more pleasant working from home than going to a call center with all the noise in the racket. And, and I think our customers appreciate that because they, and we, we did it because we were in a little bitty town that just couldn't find enough good horse people. And so we made our change our system so we can find a great horse person that's anywhere in the country. And, and our agents have been with us for an average of 10 years now and are very experienced. And uh, we just couldn't do that being in a in a relatively little town where we started. Hey, Tom, I got a question. So is the Reno area, is there a, a horse population around Reno? Is it very horse? Yeah, this is actually a pretty, a cowboy town. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have, we're surrounded um, uh, in, in terms of, there's a big rodeo here that was just uh, recent. And, uh, and, you know, we got a lot of wild Mustangs. I mean, this is probably one of the few places in the country that you can drive from my house less than five miles and see wild Mustangs. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a horse town. I mean, it's becoming a high tech town, but, uh, and, uh, but it's, it's also a cowboy town. Huh. Okay. It's a really nice area. So we'll jump right in, Tom. So tell us for those that are listening that might not have seen your yellow catalog, though, I think you do market really well. Um, what exactly are fly predators? Well, fly predators are little naturally occurring insect, and, and everybody has some already, and they're one of the reasons you're not completely buried in flies if you have horses. Um, it's, and it, what it does, it's a, it's a parasite of the fly, and uh, a fly's life cycle is it lays an egg in fresh rotting organic matter, primarily manure for if you have horses, um, hatches into the first stage, which is a larval stage or the maggot, um, and, it's, and then it uh, pupates, forms a cocoon, and just like a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, a fly turns into a winged insect inside this cocoon. Uh, and that all happens in as few as eight days. I mean, so, and, and female flies lay 900 eggs in their lifetime, so you can start with two flies in the spring and have millions by the summer. Um, our little insect comes along and lays her egg in the cocoon stage of the fly, because she doesn't form her own egg, and basically that stops that fly from ever emerging. And that's the secret of why our product works so well, is we get the fly before they get out and have a chance to start reproducing. Uh, and, and that's, as I said, the normal um, uh, survival rate for pest flies in, in, the, in a, a natural environment is somewhere between 2 to 4%, because if all of those 900 eggs hatch, you'd be just buried in flies. <laughs> and half that huge predation is, half that huge mortality is predation. Our little bugs beetles, mites, birds, ants, the other half is environmental, too wet, too cold, uh, and our um, flies, little fly predators, are more predation than normal. Uh, 
uh, and and that's how they how they uh, control flies. Where do you put them? You put them in all the locations where there is um, rotting organic matter, and again, this is principally manure. Um, but flies can reproduce and spoil vegetation, and you know. But it, the the good stuff is manure. Um, our little bugs go up to 150 feet, and so basically, every place is that there's some horse manure that still has some moisture left uh, is where you want to put your fly predators. Uh, and, and that's out in the pasture if the horses are in pasture. That's in the muck pile. That's in the corner of the corral. That's their favorite spot. And a very tiny amount, maybe the last 10% in the stalls. That's where you see most of your flies, but actually most of the flies are not coming from the stalls. They're just going there to warm up or cool down or feed. Well, now, so, Tom, okay, so nobody's listening to this, so we're okay. N- next door to our farm, is the, the neighbors have a manure pit. So is it possible to sneak the fly predators in there without them looking? Uh, well, hey, you could do a midnight thing or, or, or throw them over the fence if it's not too far away. Basically, a lot of people, if they share a fence line with a neighbor that has animals, you can put them on the fence line. But actually, we have found, unless the neighbor's a complete grump, they don't like flies either, and they would be thrilled to um, uh, uh, have less flies if, and in many cases, our neighbors uh, are, are you know, introduced to fly predators by our customers. Um, we did a plot of, a plot of our, our neighbors and found they tend to be clustered. And, and, and looking into that further, it was one neighbor telling another neighbor telling another neighbor, and they got all the neighbors around them because a fly goes a quarter mile, and you know, a house fly. And a stable fly, which is the one that bites them on the legs, can go many miles. So your neighbor's flies generally are your flies if they're within a quarter mile. Got it. Okay. So getting them to use fly predators is really beneficial for everybody. We've been using them now on our 10-acre property for a really long time, and we do just that. Glenn, we put it right on the corner, and I'll tell you, the neighbor on either side, I mean, I don't think they know, honestly, but I also don't think that they care even if I told them, but I just haven't had an opportunity to do so. But, you know, I think it's worked really well, and we've seen a decrease, so it's very fun. They're, they're a really good thing to do. And But I'll tell you, I think it's interesting that unlike other uh, mail-order retailers, Spalding Labs, you guys offer just fly control. You don't really branch out in other areas. Why do you do that, Tom? Well, we uh, are specialists. And, and, and unlike, you know, most other companies that sell, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 SKUs, um, you know, where the, the telephone agent, which is really good at telling, you know, taking uh, information on where to ship it and how many do you want, but can't really tell you much about any one particular product, we chose to focus just on fly control. Um, and so we offer our fly predators. Um, we have fly traps. Uh, we now have, uh, and we've offered for, for a number of years, fly, other fly sprays by other manufacturers. And this year's, we're offering our new Bye Bye Insects uh, essential oil-based fly spray. Because um, it's flies are really resourceful. And, and there's you know, fly predators will work if you're the source of flies, and they'll eliminate 90, 98, you know, 95% of your flies. But if you got neighbors, and/or if you're trail riding, and/or you're doing other stuff, you may need other things, uh, or you're catching up because you have you started fly predators late in the season after you had a ton of flies. So, so basically, a little knowledge goes a long way of having many fewer flies, and it takes a complement of products to take care of them. Uh, fly predators to get stop flies, fly traps to catch adults coming in, and fly spray to you know to keep them off your horse uh, when you're trail riding or for the ones that are migrating in. 
Well, and before we jump into your fly sprays, I definitely want to talk about that. Your um, you have a 32-page catalog, and it is not just about your products. You definitely have a lot of education in there and different tips. Um, have you found that that's really useful, and do your customers enjoy that education? Yes. Um, they enjoy fewer flies, and basically a lot of people um, are doing stuff completely wrong that they just don't realize the that the, they have many more flies than they would have if they did some, a few things differently. Um, the, the biggest no-no that people do uh, is they take an odor trap, which are the traps you add liquid to, and they put them right in their barn, literally over the stalls or on the eaves of the barn or at their back door. And those traps are designed to attract flies from a big distance. And so essentially you're bringing every fly in the neighborhood right to the spot you don't want them to come to. Uh, and simply by telling them, that, gee, that's not the right thing to do, move that trap a couple hundred feet away, uh, you know, it makes a, a big, big difference. And, uh, uh, and, and, and having fewer flies, whatever the means, is basically really helpful. So the fly spray, um, I just got myself a bottle, actually, and I've been using it because the flies have hit Colorado. We, we don't really get them until, you know, a little bit later in the year. But boy, when they come, they come. It's like they know they have a short season, so they're going to go for it. <laughs> so I, I use, um, of course, fly predators, too. And I love the fly spray because I feel like, you know, with my riding students, if they're going to be putting the fly spray on and or if I'm going to be putting it on and they're around, I just want it to be a little bit more as close as we can to not being sheer poison where the label says carcinogen on it. Um, I would love it to be a little bit more, even though I know you can't use the word natural around fly spray. You taught me that, Tom, but a little bit more, not so not nice to the horse or the people around. So tell us a little bit about yours and how that all came to be. Well, we um, uh, have offered for many years the uh, sorbine line of products, which, uh, you know, the best-selling natural fly spray, which is, is our essential oil fly spray is our Ultra Shield Green. Uh, and then for customers that, that that didn't work good enough, then we offered their Ultra Shield Red. Um, and, but the Ultra Shield Red is a, a pyrethroid uh, synthetic chemical product, as are all the other fly sprays you buy that, that are effective. Um, and, and so we were looking for, you know, we, we're the natural, I mean, we're the or natural, organics, uh, uh, non-chemical approach as far as the, most of our customers appreciate. Uh, but essential oil fly sprays historically have never really worked as good as the chemical stuff. Uh, and so we worked really hard. We've started this project in 2016. Uh, we have done a huge amount of testing, uh, and we finally got, uh, at the end of last year, a, 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 a essential oil-based fly spray that was as good as and better than many uh, any of the of the high end, uh, expensive, good pyrethrin fly spray. So that's a first for essential oils, but it retains the essential oil benefits of it smells good and uh, uh, and and it is there's you know centuries and centuries of use of essential oils with you know relatively little to no adverse impact. Um, the chemical sprays you know, have been around for now 40 years. And in fact, the sprays you're using now were, were, were registered in the 80s and 90s, and, and they haven't changed anything since then. So uh, it, it's, you know, we found that uh, uh, doing a lot more research than typically done for fly sprays, we've ended up with a, a better widget. Well, I'll tell you, we've enjoyed it here on our property and it's working well. Um, how can a company that is brand new to the fly spray business, though, compete with the big established fly spray companies? What have you found in that area? 
Well, we do a lot of marketing, and um, you know, we have been uh, uh, in in this company and prior companies uh, not afraid of going up against you know the established guys if you have a better product. Um, and and we, I think, the biggest advantage we have is we communicate way better. I mean, we we have this catalog that will distribute uh, over a million every year. Uh, and and as you mentioned earlier, it's a 32-page catalog, and the last half of that is information on on fly control, including a lot of fly control that you know we won't uh, affect with fly predators um, and or mosquitoes and and um, uh, bot flies and stuff like that. So so we, you know we've added eight pages to that uh, mail catalog and uh, and and that includes the the fly spray section uh, and of which we have much more information and uh, on on how to use the fly spray and and why it's different. So I think that the our our strategy and, and our history is that a better educated customer will use it correctly, will notice the difference, and and that's how we're going to compete. Uh, plus, we're direct sellers. We also go through some some resellers. Um, you know, Valley Vets a reseller as as well as uh, you'll start seeing this in uh, in other resellers. But we provide a lot of good information and, and already do a lot of marketing in the fly control segment. So, Tom, how can our listeners find Spalding Labs? For those that don't know or want to know more, how can they find you? What are the best ways? Um, our website is spalding-labs.com, and Spalding's without a U. Uh, you can still it, 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 we we also have the domain Spalding with the U, but basically the, the, our name doesn't have the U. Um, or or give us a call, and uh, you know, as as far as the uh, um, and um, it's a uh, we have a, a call center that, that runs from seven in the, in the, in the uh, morning Eastern time to uh, uh, seven p.m. Uh, Western time, and uh, you know we're six days a week. So we're just closed on Sunday. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our number is eight hundred seven zero six three one one nine. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. I think not only did you share about Spalding projects, but products, but you also shared with us just fly control in general. Like even the thing about moving those fly traps away instead of drawing them to, I think so many of us make that mistake. And I'm sure there's a lot of other mistakes we make. So here's to education on, you know, everything in the horse industry and fly control is a huge one. So we really appreciate you being on today. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, you probably you guys probably have two weeks of flies, and then you're done. Yeah, it's it's pretty fast. Um, <laughs> July normally, and then a little bit into August. I'll tell you though, what happens with ours is in the fall when they start to get really slow and they're pretty easy to kill because we've had maybe not quite a freeze, but it's getting a little bit colder. Then they all come out because they know they're going to die soon, and and they're just a pain in the butt. But they're really easy to kill then because they're kind of lethargic. And then the first freeze we get, which you know can be as early as September, uh, normally it's more like October. They all die. And that's pretty nice. Yeah, we have them all year. <laughs> they pretty much well, never yes, die. Yes, yeah. but you also have fabulous weather all that, year. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But this year the flies have been – usually it gets chillier. I mean, we've had some chilly winters, but uh, this year we didn't get the chilly winter. And, and so we had definitely have more flies than we usually do. But the fact that there's a, you know, a, a large manure pile right next door probably doesn't help, <clears throat> I'm sure. Yes. And I'll tell you, I I do put our fly predators on our manure pile and I find that that really works. The only thing about um, fly predators too sometimes is, you know, our chickens think that they look really delicious. So I just make sure the chickens aren't out when I put them down and let Uh, them, you know, come out of their pupa stage and hatch and do everything. And then it's fine. 
What do they look yeah. like when they're hatched? They're little, tiny. They almost look like, oh, a gnat. Really? They're that small? Yeah, really little. Huh. Yes. And they're yeah, and they actually don't go anywhere eating the larvae, right? They're eating the... As they are and laying yeah. their own eggs inside. Yes. Ah, and it. I'll tell you, it's just, they work. I'm just, I'm really impressed. It was really fun to have Tom on. I'm glad he could do that. And and you you get the number of them that you buy is based on how large your area is? Correct. So there's a calculation you do is you go ahead and you send in your calculation of how many animals you have, what kinds of animals, chickens, horses, goats, you know, whatever, um, how big your property is, and then uh, where you live. And then you get them monthly based on that. And they come in the mail and you wait for them to start hatching inside the little bag. And when you see them start to hatch, you put them out. You just put them around the farm, huh? Yeah, I have a pile of them right now on my uh, kitchen counter waiting to hatch. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. That's funny. It's like a little science uh, experiment. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> These have been out for a very long time, and I do think more and more people are using them. I would agree. Yeah. Definitely. It's understanding th- what they are. So our next uh, guest, who's Jennifer's getting on the line right now, uh, we're going to be talking about essential oils. Do you Have you used them at all? Do you know anything about them? You know, I have not used them with my horses, but I have used them with my family. Um, I have a friend that sells them, and so she kind of got me involved in how some of them really help. Like, I'll be honest with you, the other day I was teaching a bunch of riding lessons, and I was doing it midday, which you should never do, and it was, you know, 90, and we're close to the sun. It was pretty hot, and I got a little bit dehydrated, so I came back in, and I put a little tiny bit of peppermint in my water. Oh, my gosh. It was like drinking, you know, a candy cane, but boy, did it refresh me instantly. And that was something my friend had told me to do. So I Hmm. believe in them very much. Have you ever used them? No, I don't think so. So let's find out about them. Jennifer's here. I'm excited. So I'm excited to introduce Jennifer Gay. She is certified in aromatherapy and is educating horse owners across the nation about safe and natural health care options for their horses and their families. After the camp she worked at for 15 years closed, she brought her first two horses, bought her first two horses, and became the founder of Greenblood.horse and director at Heavenly Horse Tables. Jen has a personal goal to make the world a better place for horses by educating the people around them. Jen is a CHA certified instructor for us, our Region 4 director, and a lifetime member. She sits on the board of directors for the Pinckney Trail Riding Association and is a lifetime member of the Girl Scouts. Welcome, Jen. How are you? I'm doing really good. How are you guys? Doing well. Can you tell our listeners where you're chatting with us from today? Um, I am chatting with you guys from Howell, Michigan, um, and that's just like a rural area. I'm about an hour outside of like Detroit, Flint, and Lansing, so we're kind of like right in the middle of all the major cities here in Michigan. And how is your weather this time of year? Um, it's it's warm and humid. Um, we're hitting around like the high 80s, um, mid 90s, and our humidity is anywhere from 50 to 75 percent some days. Woohoo! <laughs> Don't have to wear any lotion or chapstick out there like you do here. No, not right now. <laughs> I love it. Well, how did you get into essential oils? How did this all come about? Um, well, my barn owner is actually allergic to most of the fly sprays that you would be buying at like tractor supply and things like that. Um, and so she actually was making her own homemade uh, fly sprays herself using oils. And then that's kind of where I got introduced to them. And then my friend had been selling them and taught me about the medical benefits from them. 
And the first thing we used them on was my um, stepdaughter's ear infection, and it worked immediately. And from there, it's just been kind of a rabbit hole of learning and using, and it's just been fabulous. I've helped with my own anxiety um, and my some um, digestive issues that I have. Um, it's been fabulous. So we're going to talk, I know, today about how oils can help people and horses. So let's jump right into how, what are some common things that oils can help with in the horses themselves? Um, so, I mean, really essential oils are your like natural medications. And so they help with everything. Um, the main thing that I use them for at our barn is like what we call a skin soother. So I make a mixture using frankincense and lavender and tea tree, um, and we dilute it with grapeseed oil at my facility because my partner um, that we work with at my facility is highly allergic to coconut, but most of the time we would use a coconut oil for a diluting base, Um, but we'll use that for cuts, scrapes, any type of um, skin irritations from rashes or things like that, we'll, we'll use that mixture on them. Um, the nice thing is, is the bug bites is the lavender is also a bug deterrent. So when we put that on any of their bug bites or in their ears and things, it also helps repel the bugs for them. And I love that idea of in um, the ears. This time of year, those mites and things can get in their ears and it's pretty nasty. And you kind of oh, think, you know, oh, what is a good way to get rid of that? So that's a great idea. It is. It is. It works out real well. Um, and it's, you know, it gives them a nice smell afterwards too. Um, another one that we use a lot, um, at our facility for our horses is one that's called Digestin and it's for their digestive system. So how does that work? Um, so when we give it to them, we either put it directly on their abdomen Um, or I will also place it in a couple drops in a bucket of water and we just leave that sitting next to the troughs. And so the horses can kind of choose on their own if they want to be able to take it in or not. And do you find that a lot of them do? Um, I have a few that are more attracted to it than others are. Um, I have like one um, horse named Jake. Um, he, you, he shows us signs that he has ulcers. We haven't had him scoped yet. Um, but he is one that is very, very, um, into drinking a lot of it, or he'll just stand over the bucket and smell it. So just even getting the aromatic benefits from it. So he'll just stand over there and smell the bucket and not necessarily drink it or anything, but you'll see him licking and chewing and kind of going in into a little trance while he's standing over next to that particular bucket when we have that set up for them. I always find it fascinating. You know, horses don't have a placebo effect, right? You can't say, okay, you're taking medicine now. This is going to make you feel better. They either do or they don't. So with the natural oils, I find it fascinating how they're reacting and they're saying, oh yeah, this is helpful to me, which probably shows that he might have something going on in his gut that one of the others doesn't have. So I think that's just fascinating. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in the wild, um, our horses will wander around and they'll eat things that aren't in their normal diet when they're not feeling well. But here in captivity, we as humans, we kind of choose and tell them everything that they need. And now with oils, we're able to bring in all of these different herbs and things like that and put in front of them and let them have some choices and let you know, you know, I like this one. I don't like this one. And those type of things also helps with even emotional base with our, our horses and things like that. Do you find with those horses that are extremely nervous, like when you take them off property or something like that, what, what do you do for those? 
Um, depending on the horse, we, I use um, a lavender a lot with them because lavender has those calming effects. Um, my particular favorite blend is called Balance. It's a grounding blend. It's got some some pine smells and some earthy smells like that to it, and it helps with my anxiety. And I've got a couple of horses that when I've offered it to them, they've really enjoyed that smell. And so I've put it kind of in their manes um, and on their chest before taking them out. And you, I've noticed that they're a little bit calmer on the trails. I love that. And you know what's neat about this is natural oils are just that. They're natural. So I don't think your horse show um, are going to have a problem with people using them like they do medications, right? So it's going to be a nice way for people that do maybe have some horse show anxiety and things like that to maybe overcome some of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that there are some um, horse shows and some um, areas and associations that have some restriction on using lavender um, or other particular ones because there are some horses have a really strong effect and it can make a really big difference in them being um, anxious or, or a little bit hot or not. So depending on what level you're showing it, but I know like for your, your beginning shows and things like that, absolutely. That's good to know though. Always look and at your rule book. Your riders. Yes. So Absolutely. let's dive into the riders. Let's dive into what are some specific oils and what have you used them for, for yourself, for your riders where you've seen benefit? So for me, I, I run a beginning riding program out of Heavenly Horse Stables. And so I have a lot of younger kids um, that have a little bit more concentration problems sometimes. And so my regular lesson students use a focus blend um, a lot. And that one has some oils in it like patchouli and frankincense and a lang lang and sandalwood and those ones all really have like some calming and clarity um, and focus type of um, effects on people. So those ones are what I give to my students before we go into lesson um, so that my kids aren't just staring out the window or looking on what's going on out in the paddocks and other things like that. So it kind of keeps their mind on what we're doing in the lesson or versus them thinking about what they're going to do when they get home that night. And um, where do and then you another apply one it? Can I just jump in just really quick before you uh, talk about your next one? Where do you apply it and how often do you apply it? So for the focus one for our riders, um, they place them on their wrists and then right underneath like around their throat. Um, or on the back of their ears. So those areas are kind of um, your sensitive spots, and so it can kind of get into your bloodstream a little bit better. As well as having it on your throat, on the back of your ears, you'll be able to breathe in the smells there to get the aromatic benefits from them. So anytime our riders use something like this for focus, those would be the places that we would put them on them. And is there anything that is not good? Like, can you overuse them and have any side effects? Um, if you have a sensitivity to um, smells and things like that, I know some people, when they have lavender on them, they immediately are like, oh, I'm ready for a nap. So those people, you might want to dilute it down for them. But for the most part, there is not any type of um, problems like that. You can't overdose them. Um, I know like my friend Molly, when she was starting and learning about oils, she knew that peppermint will help with a fever. And so she said she used about 30 drops across her daughter's forehead and down her back and on the bottom of her feet. And really she found out, oh, I really probably needed about four. Uh, <laughs> but it's not going to hurt her at all by covering yourself in some oils. She just smelled like a big old candy cane. Absolutely. <laughs> and it helps with the fever. 
That's wonderful. So you were going to go into another few things that uh, work for riders. What are some other things that work? Um, another really good one. I mean, like I talked about that balance. Um, I have a lot of beginner riders um, and a lot of adult riders who have never really ridden wanting to go out on trails. And so even in my first aid pack, um, I will have in there my um, anxiety blend or our grounding blend balance for them. And so that's really nice for them that if while they're riding, all of a sudden they, st- they themselves start feeling anxious, they can kind of pull that out and we can have some inhales and let them breathe for a moment before we continue down the trail with them. And so that, that I found that very, very beneficial for my adult beginner riders. I love that. So are you applying these, and I'm just going to get really basic here. Are you applying these with an eyedropper? Or are you applying them by putting them on your hand and then applying them to the horse or rider? Are you applying them with a rag? How exactly are you applying them? So for the most part, we'll have it in an eyedropper and we'll place it in our own hands and then apply it on our animals as needed. Um, And then for my riders and things, I'll have like a roller ball for them um, available for them to just roll it directly onto their skin. Um, And then for like my trail riders who are only with me one time, I have little individual bottles that I kind of just let them keep for themselves. So we don't have something where they're rubbing it on them or we're we're sharing oils across the base. They kind of get their own little bottle to take home with them at the end. So Jen, give us an idea of how many riders you have, how many horses you have, and how much you spend a month on natural oils, just so people kind of know, do I want a budget for this? How does it all work? Um, well, I, again, I've got, I have 12 horses and I have um, roughly about 10 to 15 um, regular weekly riders through our barn um, on top of just anywhere from 15 to maybe 30 one-time riders that come through. Um, but I spend anywhere from about 100 to $150 a month on this, but I also use it, like I said, for all of my skin soother for my dozen horses. We use it for our fly sprays for our entire barn, which has about 14 horses in it. So really, um, if you think about so that, that's that not also, too much. It's way cheaper than probably buying no, a ton of product to do all this with. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I also use them for, um, I don't have a couple of my horses on like joint supplements. We're using um, an oil co- called Kapiba with them instead of giving them joint supplements for, for their um, arthritis and things like that. And we've had some great success with that. And how do you apply that oil? Is that one that they eat? You put it in their food? Yep. So the Kapiva oil and how we're currently giving it to our couple horses is we're just doing three um, drops in their food. Um, one of them gets it once a day and then one of my other horses gets it twice a day and his is only um, two drops in the morning and then two drops in the evening in his feed. And what I love about this is, you know, a lot of us use um, older horses, right? When we're teaching beginners to ride and they start getting their aches and pains, like their joint issues and things like this. And how wonderful if there's a possibility of doing something with a natural oil before you have to go to medicine. I think that that's just fabulous. So I'm so glad that there's some of these things that others can, you know, use on their animals, whether they're young or old, um, and also on themselves. Oh, absolutely. I, I would much prefer to see a couple of my guys being on Kapiba every day right now than having to start giving them Butte every day or something like that. And how do you spell that one? Will you spell that one for people? Um, it is C-O-P-I-B-I-A. Huh. And are you learning yourself about the origins of where these oils come from and what countries and what plants they come from and all of what you do? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I am learning more and more about those um, type of things. And so um, the oils that I use is called doTERRA and they have a very, very high standard and quality and they actually get um, plants and part of their standards and qualities on producing their oils is that plants have to come from where they're indigenous from and there has to be proper sourcing for them and things like that. So my favorite thing about them is like their frankincense, um, the way that they um, source their frankincense is that the trees that they're stripping the barks from, um, they need about two years of regrowth. And so they have found new farmers to secure and be able to get um, the oils from currently. And then they are still paying our original farmers their normal wages to not harvest those trees so that we're able to to have some oils in the future. So when these trees that we're currently harvesting on need to break, we'll be able to go back to our first set of farmers and be able to still have the same quality oil. I love that. I love knowing where things are coming from and how they're being extracted and what's happening. So that is really good. So go ahead and let us know, Jen. um, Is there anything else you want to add today before we go ahead and find out for for our listeners how they can find out more about you and doTERRA and other types of oils? Um, Anything else you want to add? Um, if they're oil users and they're and they're getting new into them and they're planning to use them with their horses and things like that, just make sure that they do their research and know where their oils are and their the testing that's involved with the the oils that they have because the oil industry is flooded. Um, they they sell them at Michaels, they sell them at General Dollars and things like that. There are so many more synthetics that are out there on the on the market than there are real natural oils. So just knowing what type of oils that you have and that you have a good safe quality before giving them to to your horses. So just read the side of the bottle if it says do not ingest, you know, don't don't put it in your feed or your horse's feed. That's really a good tip because I think you're right about that. You know, there's a lot of things when they come out in the market and then these synthetics and these kind of knockoffs are created and they aren't necessarily as good or as useful as the actual, you know, full entity. So I love that. That's a really good disclaimer for people. So Jen, how can we find out more about you? What is the website, social media? I know, of course, you're on chainstructors.com for those that want to go there. What's the best way to reach you? I am. I am. I am on chainstructors.com. I do have a website. It is um, www.greenblood.horse. And then I also have a Facebook page, which is also just um, greenblood.horse. And I am so excited because I get to see you in October and learn more about this topic because you'll be at our CHA International Conference. So for those that are listening, this is for everybody. Um, You know, you can come to this conference and you can listen to Jen and many of the other speakers that we have there. So excited to see you very soon in just a few months. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm going to have lots of oils for everyone to get hands on with while we're there. Oh, that'll be fun. All right. Well, I'll, I'll come for sure because I'm always running around like a chicken with my head cut off. So I'm going to need a little bit of calming <laughs> oil. So I will be there for the calming Absolutely. oil. Okay. Make sure to bring me some <laughs> and save it aside for Christy. But this is Christie's. Do not touch this one. I, I will. I will have a big sign that says Christie's bottle of calming. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Jed. Thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Have a well, I, ha- I feel a need to do the HRN disclaimer at this point, though, that if your horse is having a problem, have the veterinarian out first. Um, and to oh, take a you've look always at, got yeah. to do that. Yeah, I Absolutely. have to do the HRN disclaimer. Um, Absolutely. I'm not saying essential oils don't work. I'm just 
doing the HRN disclaimer. Uh, and they do work. A lot of people use them. A lot of our listeners use them. And have, there's been large discussions about them in the auditor room. So it's interesting to hear because she actually gave us names. Sometimes when we've had people on in the past, they haven't gotten specific. I'm glad she got specific. I loved it. She yeah. was very good about the different types of oils. And I wanted that one spelled out because I want to find out more about that. I got old guys. I got 19 yeah. and 21, and they're still jumping two foot and doing great. And I want to keep their you know joints healthy. So I was like, oh, that's really good. I'm going to write that one down. Yeah. Very good. Well, you know, on Friday's show, we had uh, we talked a little bit about Templeton Thompson, who was going to be at Briarfest, and she was supposed to join us um, a- on the show, but she was traveling in, in a bad spot on her on her way to Briarfest. As a matter of fact, they got stuck in a traffic jam, and she got there really late. So I promised on Friday I would play the first song we ever played on Horses in the Morning, uh, and it was a Templeton song, and that was Girls and Horses. And she wrote that song specifically for Briarfest many, many, many years ago, and that's where she sang it. And I forgot to play it. So today for the song, we're going to play Girls and Horses. And then we'll be back. We have more coming up. Uh, We're switching gears a little bit and going to talk about how you can make money with horses. Yeah, I know. It's a strange concept, but apparently it can happen. And we'll find out. Coming up, we have uh, Celia on to talk to us about how that happens. All on today's show. She talks about them, dreams about them, thinks about them all the time. She's got to have them, be lost without them. You can see it in her eyes. What is it? What is it with girls and horses? She says, now when I was a young girl, they were my whole world. They were my one safe place. And now that I'm older, I still lean on their shoulders. I still feel like that girl some days. What is it? What is it with girls?
Well, that was Templeton Thompson with Girls and Horses. You can find all of her music at templetonthompson.com. And also on there is a schedule for her live performances. We've gotten to see her live a couple of times, her and Sam, her husband, and it's been a lot of fun. So uh, templetonthompson.com. So um, let's go to right now while we're waiting for our next guest. I found this list and I thought of you. And this is oh. a list on Horse and Hound uh, and seeing we're going to England soon. Um, so I found this. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but we can do a couple of them. And it's Horse and Hound. So you have to wait to get through the 45,000 ads they put on their website. <laughs> Good Lord. So anyway, Horse and Hound, number one publication in all of England. They have this list called the 10 Training Tips that top riders swear by and they go through some top riders and I'll pick out uh, some that you'll know the name of. Gemma Tattersall, who's an inventor, says, my mom used to make me ride come rain or shine. She said the consistency is the key to good riding and it's something I've always carried with me. Horses need to have regular training and you need to be consistent in what you are asking them to do. It's interesting because last night, nobody wants to practice in the rain. Right? Nobody wants to do that. It's just not something you volunteer for. It's not something your horse really wants to do either. But when it rains at a show, if you've had no practice in the rain and your horse hasn't any practice in the rain, it's not necessarily a good thing, right? That's true. Practice makes perfect. I had a, uh, last night I did an interview with one of our listeners who's also a driver and she went from singles to pairs and she did a show over the weekend, a CDE, Combined Driving Event, where they do the three phases and it poured the whole day. Uh. It poured for marathon, it poured for dressage, it poured for cones. And, you know, there's an example of if your horses aren't used to being splattered in the face and, and when they're supposed to be working, you know, right. so occasionally, yeah, getting out and actually riding when it's uh, raining is probably a good idea. Well, and, and the slickness, right, of the different feel of footing when it's muddy. That's right. And with marathon, you're, the idea is go as fast as you can. Right. Uh, through the obstacles. So, yeah, that, uh, that's something. Here's something I thought you would like. Katie Jaram, who's a show producer, said, never use a gadget as a quick fix. I learned this from a renowned writer. I never saw a gadget at her yard. I use a martingale on horses on breaking for a little extra security, and I may hack the babies in a market uh, bridle, but, uh, which is kind on the mouth, but never use a gadget to solve a problem. I thought that was you know, really good. I like that. We say less is more. So even for our CHA instructors, we actually have a funny risk management photo that we show that has a martingale and a hunting plate and, you know, for the Western, like the back cinch and the tie down. And we put bell boots on and splint boots and running boots, right? All these things, because we say, you know, they can get hung up on the horse when you're out, especially when you're out on the trail, they can, you know, cause problems when they're stamping at a fly or they put their head down to itch. I mean, all these things that can occur. I've seen bits get stuck on martingales you know, all these things. And so, yes, less is more. I would completely agree. I think that's wonderful. There's nothing like using your four natural aids and just learning how to ride properly without the gadgets. One more, and then we'll go to our guest. This is from Anna Ross, a dressage rider. And she said, a German Olympic team gold medalist told me this once by the name of Ulla Salzberger. And she told me once, if you keep your hands still, You'll start using your legs. And how many riders? Ah. Have we seen? <laughs> how many riders have we seen with the very busy hands? And then I love that. I love this one too. A wise man told me once: never get back on a horse for the third time. Ah. 
<laughs> Think about that, Especially right? Especially all in a row on the same day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You you come off once, you ah, get back. One. You come uh-huh. off twice. Like Maybe it. it's not a good day to get back on for the third time. I we got, like it. We need to address awesome. the issue at that point. So <laughs> everybody needs a break. Probably. So I'll take a break. <laughs> I just uh, love that. That was my favorite one. That's a good one. All right. Let's go. Let's find out how to make money. With horses. I'm excited to introduce Celia Bunge and her daughter, Daniela. They own and operate Miami International Riding Club in Florida. MIRC <laughs> is the largest hunter-jumper barn in the Miami area. Wait a minute. Wait 50... a minute. Let's stop right there. You sure. can make money on horses in Miami, of all places? <laughs> is that true, Celia? Celia? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Miami's not the cheapest place to live. <laughs> We're going to find out how, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, she has a large lesson program there. It's a USHJA recognized riding academy. Celia is a former lawyer and has a master's degree in education. She's also a graduate student. Um, she did graduate studies at the doctoral level in education and in criminal law. So talk about a background. She is a CHA certified English writing instructor for us, as well as an instructor of writers with disabilities for CHA. She received extensive training in rider biomechanics by the International Society of Rider Biomechanics. She grew up both in Mexico and in the U.S. and learned from the best of a long tradition of international horsemen, including the current president of the Equestrian Federation of Mexico. MIRC was recently awarded with the 2018 American Youth Horse Council Youth Equine Industry Connections Award, which I used to be a board member of theirs for 13 years, so I love them, uh, for going the extra mile to connect kids through horses. So welcome, Celia. How are you? Oh, hi. I am so happy to be here with you guys. So excited well, we're- to talk to you again, Misty. Yes, me too. And I'm so excited we get to see you at conference in just a few short months. That'll be fun too, where you're going to yeah. share even more with all of our folks and anyone else listening who wants to come. That's going to be great. Yeah, I'm super excited. Can't wait to be there. So tell us, before we launch into the topic, tell us about your um, kind of your childhood and where you grew up. I know you've, you've um, shared some time in both Mexico and the U.S. So where exactly in Mexico and the U.S. and how did that all come about? Yeah, and it's funny because also my daughter, which you mentioned, we're business partners and best friends. Uh, we have sort of followed a very similar path. Um, I have grew, I was born in Mexico City, and I have been probably half of my life in Mexico and half of my life in the U.S. Um, I did all my elementary school in Minnesota. So funny. Um, I like, I think, extreme weather. I went from frozen Minnesota to now living in Miami. Um, Danny also, she was born in Mexico City, but she grew up in New Jersey and in Florida. And then we went back to Mexico and then we're back here. So it's been like half and half. Um, Being in Miami, that has been like a huge advantage. Uh, We're not only bilingual, but we are truly bicultural. So that has been awesome. And we both have gone through the same path. I love that. So how long have you been in Miami and running MIRC? Well, in Miami, I, I was here before, but running MIRC um, last week was our sixth anniversary. Um, so we're doing well. Uh, we've surprised ourselves as how much we have grown. We started with pretty much nothing. Uh, we had like one stall, two horses, and that's it. Um, and now we're, like you said, we're the largest show jumping barn in the Miami area. So it's, we have uh, on average 50 horses on our property all the time. That is awesome. So it's time to share your secret. 
So it's time to share your secret with others. How do you make that happen? How do you go from a one stall, one horse uh, operation all the way up to where you are now? What are all the different steps that need to be taken? I think it's just mainly knowing who you are and what you want. I mean, uh, we always talk about it. We had a dream and we had a vision. And uh, we also had been on the other side of the fence. Uh, we were clients. We attended riding schools. We then went on to buying courses. We became successful show jumpers. We showed internationally, nationally, we, how riding clubs worked in Mexico, in the U.S., in Europe. Uh, my daughter spent uh, more than six months uh, riding and training and competing in Germany and in Spain. So we knew we liked and what we didn't. And we really thought that we could create our very own thing, um, incorporating what was best in any in those different situations. Um, but uh, funny story first, um, everybody always tried to convince us that it could be done. Um, and uh, when I first wanted to create our barn, I first thought that we couldn't do it on our own. Like most of us, especially I think when you're women, <laughs> you kind of think, no, I can't go into business on my own. It's impossible. So I spoke to a very dear friend of mine, a, a, a top level international writer. And I said, okay, let's create this barn, partner up. And what ended up happening is that he convinced me not to do it. He said, there's no money in having uh, a stable. You cannot run an equestrian facility that just forget it. Um, the only way you can make money is by buying European horses bringing them either to Mexico or the U.S. It's a huge market, selling it, and then then you'll make money. Um, do you want to know what happened? <laughs> what happened? Uh, oh, we failed. Absolutely failed. Uh -huh. um, the, the, horses, the horses we brought from Europe, I still have them. They're an important part of our barn. I was never able to sell them, not wanted to buy them. They still want to buy them from us. But I had to come to... I realized that that's not who we are. We don't sell horses. Uh, we love horses too much. We're attached to them. I'll never be able to sell a horse unless I know the horse is going to stay with us. Like if I can sell a horse to a client that's going to continue being with us, but I cannot sell a horse for a profit. So if you want to make a business successful, who you are, I'd be the key to all of it. I would agree with that. And then once you kind of know that business plan, how do you go about doing all the different marketing steps and business plan steps to make it happen? Well, I think I could. Sue, you're, we're, you're cutting yeah. out on us a bit. Yeah. Are you moving around? Um, no. Do you, do you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We just lost a couple of the last sentences. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know. Uh, she was, I, I know that Christy was asking me what we've done. Um, I think I can give a couple of tips to everybody. Okay. I think, uh, one You're of better now. We can hear you, you now. You can do is, Yeah, you can hear me? Yep. Okay, I would suggest everybody to, like, think outside the box. That would be the first thing. Um, to listen to your crazy ideas, especially to those that people tell you, oh, no, that can't be done. Forget it. That just won't work. That won't happen. Uh, that usually tends to work the best because that's where you're really being true to yourself. Um, I would say that one of the biggest things we've done is to incorporate what we're passionate about to our business. So, like, we have a uh, rehabilitating training program of uh, mostly ex-race horses uh, to our riding program, to our 
barn. And uh, we're not a non-for-profit. We do it from what we make, and we use our own riding students to help us work with those horses and then incorporate it into our lives, and, and they become lesson horses or show horses. Um, the other thing, and that goes to what Christy was saying, uh, put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to be criticized. Uh, be on social media. We are huge on social media. Uh, we have Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, everything. We do uh, TV. We do, well, I'm here on the radio. We go to conferences. So so be there. A lot of people are afraid. I'm like, oh, what are people going to say? They're not going to agree with what I say. Well, it doesn't matter. As long as you're true to what you're doing and what you're saying, um, it'll, it'll create your brand. And uh, I would say also believe in yourself. Start things even when you're afraid to. Um, and like I said before, build a business that really reflects your values and find your own market. I think one of our other, um, keys to our success has been that we have created pretty much every single client. We made all of our clients. Um, most of our, our riders started from our up and downs, and now they're in our competition team. They own horses, and they help us. Uh, run the Riders with Disability programs. They help us with our uh, rehabilitating of racehorses. They help us with outreach programs. So I think you have to be creative and don't be afraid to grow. Um, you can do it. Well, not only that, I think, too, that like any other business, you're not going to make a fortune the first year. The, it, it, any business, whether it's in the horse world or not, it takes time. It takes time and it's a lot more work than you would think. I know they tell you, oh, if you're doing what you love, you're never going to be working. Oh, forget it. I work seven days a week. There you I go. All day, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Even at night. I mean, I'm already in my bed and then suddenly this light bulb goes on and I have this idea and then I am, oh my God, I have to do this. Um, and then I'm answering messages and people will tell you, no, you have to set boundaries. Well, no. If it's your business, you're going to have to go all in. You know, I'm glad you said that because I get that a lot. I get people saying to me a lot in the podcasting world, well, you're doing what you love. Yeah, I'm doing what I love about about 20% of the time when I'm really on the microphone and talking to all of you. And then the rest of the time, it's work. <laughs> it's just, you know, <laughs> it's agree. selling yeah. ads, it's talking to sponsors, it's work, right? I, and, you it's know, I, a lot of work. Yeah. And I know riders say that too. Yeah, but I get to ride 10 horses a day. But yeah, they're riding 10 horses a day. Okay, so you know it's work. Yeah, so you have to do all the other stuff, right? Right, and we were <laughs> just talking like, about. Sometimes I don't even have time to ride my horse. <laughs> right. Well, that's what happens oh, yeah. when you own a barn. That's what happened when we owned a barn. We we spent so much time taking care of other people's horses, we never got to do anything with ours. It was the same way. Yeah. Well, I try. I, I try to do it. That's why I say incorporate what you're passionate about. And so we try to do it, but. But it's not a priority. Sometimes, I mean, you need to make the money, you need to make the living, you need to make that continue working. So that comes first. And yeah, I, you work 24-7, literally. All right. I don't feel like such a schmuck now. Because when somebody <laughs> says that to you, what are you <laughs> going to say? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but when somebody says that to you, you almost can't give the, the answer you want to. You have to say, yes, you're right. Because you sound like a schmuck if you're complaining about it, right? So... <laughs> So you don't. You yeah, just, well, yeah. I don't complain. I just do it. <laughs> I know it's going to happen. And especially, like, just imagine our lives. Yeah, everybody says, oh, Miami's in the sun. Yeah. Try to spend there, like, 10, 12 hours in the arena under the Miami sun. It's not so, so fun anymore. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> we look great. 
Yeah, we're in, o- we're in Ocala, and you guys are 10 degrees warmer than us usually. So, <laughs> so I, I, I know what you're going through. It yeah, is hot there. Know. So, Celia, let us know, mm-hmm. out of all the different things you do, obviously you have a variety of things to make money. Where is truly kind of your bread and butter? Is it your boarding fees? Is it your lesson fees? What is it? Is it your horse show fees? Or is it truly a combination of everything? Where is kind of your bread and butter in your business plan? I think at the, in the end, it comes to a combination. But I think the pillar of our business has been the writing program. Uh, the writing program brings more money. But uh, you need all the other ones also uh, because uh, you have to be all the time bringing new clients to the writing program. Yes, you'll keep a percentage of them, but you're all the time going to have to be working on getting new people through the doors. Um, It's like with everything, like kids experiments, they might want to try riding horses. Some of them will love them, but some of them will just do this. And then the next month they'll try tennis. Uh, So you have to know that Um, not everybody's going to be crazy about horses. Uh, Hopefully you'll find the ones that are. And that has fed our other parts of the business. That has, uh, that's how we've gotten all our borders. And that's how we made our competition team. Uh, We started from the writing academy. And that's something we knew, even like when we were learning to ride horses. Um, And funny enough, a lot of the people in the horse business kind of look down to beginner riders. Um, I had it like many years ago when, when I started my daughter in summer camp with horses. And at some point I complained to one of the instructors and said, oh, hey, I'm not so happy. Like the riding lesson, nobody pays attention to it. Uh, the horses don't look that great. What's going on? And they literally told me the, the riding school doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is the people here that have the fancy horses and that are going to compete. And I was like, what do you mean? Um, and it's not true. And I knew that from then because then, I mean, we were an example of that market. We don't come from a whole line of horse people in our family. And uh, we went from learning how to ride to owning a huge string of competition horses to competing internationally and now to owning a horse business. And we started from zero. So if we were there, there's a ton of people like us. Um, and that's what we've exploited in, in, in our business. And I love that you mentioned that because in Miami, you're in a very urban area. Talk about a lot of people that live within driving distance of your barn. So now look at all the access you have to teach beginners to ride. And I'm sorry, David O'Connor and everybody else we can name right now, Al Dunning, we can name them all, had a first ride. All of us had a first ride on some school horse, whether it was owned by our family or whether we had to go somewhere and do it. We all had those first rides. And some of them are very entertaining on Shetland ponies and other things that happened to us. But you know, we all had it and some of us stuck with it and some of us said, no, thank you. But that's why CHA exists. And that's why we're so happy you're a part of Certified Horsemanship Association, Celia, is because 80% of us teach the beginner to ride and 20% teach upper level as well as, but 80% of us teach primarily the beginner and that's all we do. You obviously do a variety of things there to make your writing program successful. And I'm so glad that you have not forgotten about the beginner. I'm so glad you still have school horses and that you're giving access to these urban kids to be able to come in and that you're actually financially solvent in doing so. That's wonderful. Yeah. We're coming to a level that we are even we even do outreach. I mean, it's also something that people have laughed at us. Uh, we've brought kids that are uh, through the, the correctional system. We have kids at risk come to ride that would never be in touch with horses. And, and we're able to do it because they're riding school and all our programs 
help us be able to afford that kind of thing. And that also that also helps you in the end. I mean, because you you become something important for the community. And is your writing school primarily group lessons? Yes, that's the other secret. Uh, we yep. do some private, but uh, even at the top level, like uh, we always work on groups. Um, yes. Even like if you're a first time writer, it can be done safely. And we learned that. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, you have to have a certain amount of writers and certain amount of instructors and assistants. Uh, but everything is groups. You cannot you cannot manage everything with private lessons. It's impossible. I agree. You can't make a living with private lessons. You can certainly make a living with groups. No. Uh huh. I, I completely the, agree. Hand, yeah, on the other hand, people don't don't um, even at the time that I was writing, I hate alone. I was write love to write with my friends. Uh, it's a, it's also a way of making friends, and also when you're with other people, you tend to do better. Um, you also even like it's just peer pressure um, or, or peer fun. I don't know, but but you work harder. So I think it it also helps improve uh, the writing of people when they're able to see the other ones also trying and doing and and maybe even stumbling. Because if it's just you, it's just you to compare to and then also like, oh, my God, never do this. But you get to see that even like more advanced people stumble and they through and they go ahead and, and, and get better. So I think a lot of a lot of uh, and the group lessons are so good because you can practice passing each other on the rail like you would in a horse show. You can practice a lot of things um, and be kind of in real time. Now, I know a lot of people are probably thinking, but the school horses are just so expensive. How do you keep your costs down with taking care of all those school horses so that the riding program actually makes money? With our crazy idea. Uh, we use our own people to help us run the other programs. So once we've, and, and yes, like, like you said, you said before on the show, um, it takes time. Uh, but now we have enough writers that we have made that they volunteer their time. So a lot of the times um, our own young writers that are more advanced and experienced, they help us run those group sessions. Uh, if we're having like a big state thing for, uh, I don't know, Girl Scouts, uh, we need a lot of we don't have to pay for those hands. Uh, the kids in our barn are involved and committed that they volunteer. And we have learned to use the talents of each person. We know that not everybody is going to be a person. Um, so we know we have people who work with the horses. So they help the retraining of horses. And then we have horses. So we rehab the bred horses. And then we have the program and we have them show horses. Uh, the kids that are thinking of becoming uh, physicians or that want to be vets. Well, they help us do all the first aid things. They know how to do them, and they do them really well. So that lower cost falls, and they're learning. And they are also learning. Owners is not just getting on the horse. They're not bicycles. They need a lot of things. Um, and, the, and the kids love to work with people. Well, we have some of them helping us out, run the writers with disability programs and other the outreach programs. So we've created, like, a whole med of support that helps it make profitable. Celia, I just love it. It's very, very smart. So can you let us know your um, website so that listeners know where to find you? Where is the best way to find you? I know they can go on chainstructors.com. Uh -huh. 
mirchorses.com. Great. So for any of you that are in the Miami area, go check it out. It sounds wonderful. It even sounds like something that'd be fun to fly in and vacation in Miami and come check it out. So lots of good ideas there. So thank you, Celia, so much for being on the show today. We so appreciate your tips and we'll see you at our international conference in a few months. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being there. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I can see why she's successful. She's motivated. You know, she's she's going to get the Energy. job done no matter what, right? <laughs> yes. And, you know, I think that's a big part of things, too, right? You've got to kind of have that passion within you and that energy and that drive. Because if you come about it kind of eh, it's going to be kind of eh. But if you come across it as I'm doing this, this is great, then it's going to be successful. So there's definitely some of that to be said for it, too. Oh, I think that's everything to be said for it. If you're going to go into business for yourself and you don't have a passion for what you're doing, you will fail. And you'll fail yeah. within a year or two. It won't True. take long. Uh, you, I mean, you truly have to have a passion. It's funny because when I get people that want to start a podcast and they say, well, I don't know what a podcast about. And I say, well, then you don't need to do a podcast. If you don't yeah. know what you want a podcast about, you're not going to be If you're just going in, eh, I'll just talk about this. You're not going to be successful. You have yep. to have a passion for it. Um, you know, in, in my case, I had a passion for talking to horse people. Whereas most of my co-hosts have a passion for the horses. Now, yeah, I like horses and I have my pony and I love my pony and all that. But I really had a passion for horse people. And so when I knew when we were doing the live show, I knew I had to have a co-host and Jamie who ended up being the one that had a passion for horses. So, you know, so we we have that. And and most of my co-hosts have a passion for the horses and like horse people. Whereas I really have a passion for the horse people. So uh-huh. I think I think that was the key, right? I mean, right. Um, and it's the key to doing any business successfully because you're going to be – what she said is tr- – she, she pointed out so many things that nobody wants to say when they own a business. Is you're going to work 1,000 hours a week. Your phone is <laughs> never off. You're – you know, that's happening a lot in real jobs where you work for other people now. But yes. – um, you know, you're you're never off. You know, we're, Jennifer and I are never off. We we had we had a mix up in the schedule. We got a call in the middle of the Marvel movie, uh, and somebody left her phone on. Uh, and <laughs> so, so we get this call in the middle of the Marvel movie, and we had to leave halfway through because there was a show that wasn't being covered, and there was a mix up in the schedule. So, you know, we just had to go home, and that was the way right. it was. So, yep. and we've never seen the second half of the movie. Oh, you will eventually. <laughs> but, I have hope. But that's what it takes, right? I mean, when you have your own business. Yes. No, that's very true. And then you have to define it. Like I loved how you said you like people. I tell everyone I am a riding instructor because I like the people. I like the horses, but I'm not introverted enough to be a horse trainer. I'm not introverted enough to be all by myself on a horse all day long, riding one after the other and not have interaction with people. I have to have interaction with people. So I've become a riding instructor and I loved her tip on group lessons. I think so many people don't do that well. Um, That's why we certify only group riding. We don't even certify the private instructor because we say, if you can teach five up safely, you can certainly handle one, but we don't know the other way around. So all of our certification clinics, are groups. We make you teach five, six, seven up and, and you can do it very successfully. Even their very first ride, they don't have to be on a lunge line. They don't have to be in a round pen. They can be in a gigantic arena with cones and things put across to keep them kind of in your half and you can walk eight of them around very successfully. Yeah. You know, the professional riders that can charge $200 an hour can get away with that. Yes. Uh, But you know, it's hard to charge enough to get away with that. Yeah, because that hour where you could make, you know, individually you're charging 50, 60, 80 bucks, whatever it is, sure. uh, or you could be making 200. 
Correct. Yeah. Yes. I mean, but and you still have only that hour. I mean, that hour is that hour. You can't get it back. So, yeah, it's tough when you're a writing instructor because a lot of people want to do, they don't want to do group lessons. Um, I think it depends on the level and and the size of the group, too. I, I think the, I don't know, have you found the higher up the levels, the smaller the groups? You know, it kind of depends. Like, I'll tell you, her her example of saying that there's camaraderie is huge. Um, I know that when I worked at the urban farm, it was all groups. And I think that the kids liked it better because they got to know each other. They got to be friends. They got to kind of goof around with each other back when we went to the building. And they really did establish friendships. Um, I would say when you're truly competing at a really high level, you probably want just one, two, or three in there because you really want that privatized attention from your instructor. But when you're a beginner, well, eight up, sure, let's do this thing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think it's really okay. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you totally. Yep. Very good. Well, she was interesting. And I was so glad to hear her say that comment. I was so glad because I hear it all yes. the time. But you're doing what you love. But I'm doing it 100 hours a week. Correct. So, it's a reality check, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Sure you know, is. <laughs> you still get tired. I don't care if you're doing what you love. You're going to get tired. It just happens. <laughs> it's still work. That's why they call it work. It's why yeah. we get paid to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not like we have hard work. I talk for a living. But, you know, it's still mental hard. You know, it, it's it's mental work. Yeah, if I had unlimited money, I would just travel around to places like Aruba. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. If we had unlimited money, I'd, I, I hate to break everybody's heart, but... I wouldn't be here every day. <laughs> right. You'd be traveling around or doing yeah, other stuff. Exactly. Absolutely. There's a reason we're looking forward to vacation in two weeks. Yes. It's because of that. <clears throat> so good show. Well done. Thank you. Very fun. And everyone listening, remember, put HRN in the coupon code on our website, CHA.horse, and come play with us right outside of Buffalo, New York at Houghton College, October 24th through 27th. And you can hear Celia and Jen and many others. And if you want to get all the past episodes of uh, Certified Horsemanship Association, go to horsesinthemorning.com, scroll down to the middle of the page. You're going to see a whole bunch of little banners. Click on the CHA banner, and that brings up all the past episodes we've done for many, 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 many years. Uh, And uh, also, tomorrow we'll be back. Uh, Lisa Waisaki will be here again, filling in for Jamie. And then Thursday, we have the fox hunting episode coming up. So you can have that to look forward to yet this week. Thanks, Christy. Thank you, Glenn and Jen. Thanks for going to the concert with us. It was fun. That was super fun.